You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. How you doing, Revolution Church? I'll take it. I'm glad that you guys are all here. I see quite a few new people. My name's Dave. I'm the teaching pastor here. I also see a huge, like cluster of people back here. No one wants to sit in the front. I don't spit, but whatever, man. Uh, it's cool. Back road Joe, right? That's what I always grew up. Yeah, true Baptists. Who said that? God bless you, AJ. Yes, true Baptists sitting in the back. Um, so we are continuing our series this evening called Bible Stories, Christ in the Old Testament. And what we're doing, if you're, if you're new here and you don't really know, um, is we're looking at famous Old Testament stories and we're seeing how they all point to Christ. Um, Jesus himself said, all scripture points to me. Um, he says it a couple of different places in the, in the Gospels in a couple of different ways. Um, the, the New Testament, and especially in the book of Hebrews, alludes to that fact. Um, so our idea was just, let's just see how that's true um, and become more biblically literate people. Um, because a lot of us tend to neglect our Old Testament. But 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is God-breathed. So, and it's good for teaching and preaching and rebuke and all of those things. Um, so that means all scripture, including the Old Testament. We need to be digging in and seeing how it all points to Christ, how it foreshadows him, what we can learn from it. Um, so in the spirit of that, uh, tonight we are going to be looking at the call of Abram. Now if you don't know who Abram was, he later gets renamed Abraham. And the thing that you need to know about Abraham is that Father Abraham had many sons. And many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them, and so are you. Um, yeah, so many of us grew up in churches singing that song. It's wow, horrible, isn't it? Why, why are children's songs the worst? It's like the wheels on the bus. If you read the Bible, it's terrible. Um, <laughs> but anyway, I actually put that in my notes. Like, this is too cheesy of an opportunity for me to make that joke. It's in there, so I did not forget, yes. Um, But Abraham is legitimately one of the most important figures in the whole Bible. Um, The nation of Israel comes from him. We're going to look at that in a little while. Um, He's mentioned in the Old Testament and the New Testament. He's mentioned by Jesus himself multiple times. Paul talks about Abraham a ton in the book of Romans and especially in the book of Galatians. He uses Abraham as an arguing point um, for justification by faith alone or salvation by faith alone. So... Abraham, or Abram, is a really, really important guy. We need, to, we need to know who he is. So who was Abram? What's his story? Right, that's kind of the question. Um, we are not going to cover Abram's whole life this evening, because I could not do that even if I had until midnight. Um, and you're welcome. Uh, so we're not even going to try to do that, uh, but, because we're going to be talking about him a little bit more in this series as we're going through these famous Bible stories in the Old Testament. But rather... We are going to start at the beginning of Abram's story. And we're going to start uh, by looking at when God called Abram from among all of the people of the earth and made promises to him. It's interesting. People call this the Abrahamic covenant. That's what we're going to look at. Um, and in doing so, we're going, to, we're going to take a look at the faithfulness of God. And we're going to learn uh, about the faithfulness of God. And then see what promises that God makes believers today. Right? So my prayer uh, this week has been that we would see and understand and begin to understand more and, and trust that God is indeed faithful to his people. God's faithful to his people. 
and that once we see that and get a grasp on that, that we would begin to base our lives around that truth that if you're a believer in Christ and you are in Christ, you are part of this covenant community of believers whom God is faithful to, and that he will be faithful to you in all things that he promises to be faithful in. Right, and you can ask my wife. I, I spent a, a bunch of time on, on Thursday and uh, Wednesday and Thursday beating my head against a brick wall trying to get this sermon to come out. Because this, this means a lot to me that we would grasp this and, and understand this, that God is faithful to his people. So if you take nothing else away this evening, take that truth. That's your sentence to remember. God is faithful to his people. All right, so the background, before we can get into it, this is going to be in Genesis chapter 12 this evening, if you're a Bible flipper, uh, but I said this a couple weeks ago, uh, you're not going to be able to catch me this week because we are going to go to so many different passages so quickly. Uh, I actually think there's like 20 slides. God bless Chris Jones for making those. You are a champion. Um, so, but some background we need before we can get to Genesis chapter 12 is this. In, in Genesis 11, right, because last week we looked at the Tower of Babel narrative in Genesis 11. Um, after that, the Bible goes, to give, goes on to give us a genealogy, um, the descendants listed of a man named Shem. Now, Shem was one of Noah's three sons. He was one of the good sons. He had two good sons and a bad son. You should read, read Genesis. You'll find out. It's, it's wild. It's kind of hard to understand in some spots, but check it out. It's an interesting story. Noah's one son was messed up, man. Um, but the other two were cool. And, uh, and Shem, in Shem's line, we get to a man eventually towards the end of chapter 11 named Terah. Right, T-E-R-A-H, Terah. Um, and he's Abram's father, right, is what chapter 11 tells us. Now, it says Terah and Abram are from a place called Ur, right, because they were real creative back then. You are from a place called Ur uh, of the Chaldeans. Now, we don't know much about Terah, right? Because he's, he's legitimately just listed, and then he moves, and then he dies. Like, we don't have a whole lot about Terah. But we do know that Scripture goes on later in the book of Joshua, chapter 24, verse 2. And Joshua says this, And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham, and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Right? So we see this. So we know this. If we know our background about Terah, this is important for us, I think. A little side point. Terah was a pagan. Right? Abraham, or Abram is what we're going to refer to him for the rest of the night. Abram's father was a pagan. And he was from Ur of the Chaldeans, which is another name for Babylon, right? The Tower of Babel that we talked about last week that was totally not okay. And these people were rebelling against God and worshiping false gods and seeking out their own glory and their own comfort apart from the living God. And Terah was right there with him. Abram was right there with him. Because that, if Terah was a pagan, then that means Abram is raised as a pagan in Babylon. And then chapter 11 goes on to tell us that this pagan Abram goes on to marry a woman named Sarah. And Sarah was barren, or she couldn't have children, is what chapter 11 tells us. And then here's what's interesting. We're about to jump into chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. God goes to this godless, childless pagan named Abram, who was 75 years old at the time, and he says this to him, Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. 
And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him. And Lot went with him. It's Abram's nephew, or nephew or cousin, I'm blanking now. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Let's pray. Father, send your Holy Spirit on us to show us the truth of your word. Be with me as, as, I, as I do my best to proclaim your gospel, to proclaim the truth of the Bible. Holy Spirit, if you don't act in the lives of the believers and the unbelievers this evening, everything I say is going to be worthless. So please do an act of sovereign grace on the people here. Help us to be faithful to your word and learn from it and be transformed by the truth of the word of God. In Jesus' name, amen. So what, what, what do I see here? This, is, this was big for me. I don't know if I was trying to make a catchy sentence or not. One of the biggest thing that I see in this passage, and there's four verses, is this. God makes a promise to a pagan. Right? Yeah, you can chuckle. Like, I, I thought it was funny when I was writing it down. Right? God does not... Yeah, I think I'm the funniest man in the world. Um, God does not go to a good guy, right? Quote, good guy, like we would expect. Right? Because that's often what we're taught in churches, is that God, you know, he's, he's good to the good guy and the bad guy. He smacks down. But that's not true. <laughs> The Bible is this big record of God constantly going to bad people and changing them. That there is no good guy. Right? We're all pagans. Right? We're all godless from the day that we're born. We're in rebellion against Him. We need Him to do a sovereign work of grace in us and change us so that we would desire Him. So I think it's interesting. God makes a promise to a pagan. Why? Why would He go to this man who doesn't worship Him? Just think about that for a second. Abram has spent 75 years of his life in rebellion against God, worshiping false gods, doing what he wants to do as he sees fit with his life in Babylon, the most godless city mentioned in the Old Testament. And God condescends to talk to him. Why? Because God is gracious. That's why God talks to pagans, right? So a little side note before we really get the ball rolling. That means that there's hope for us. Right? That it doesn't matter what kind of parents that you have. If your parents are godless and don't know Christ, that doesn't matter if, if you're the only believer in your family. If you're the only person in your family that's ever walked through a church door and you yourself are not yet a believer, there is hope for you. No matter where you're from, because remember, they're from Babylon. Right? No matter where you're from, no matter who your dad is, no matter what kind of a past. Abram was 75 years old. <laughs> right? Like, can't teach an old dog new tricks. Right? God can. God can totally change somebody. So this guy's set in his ways, and yet God can change him. So that means there's hope for us because God still regularly makes promises to pagan people like you and me. Um, but yeah, I just wanted us to just for a second consider how kind that God is to call Abram out of his sin and condescend to show himself to Abram. This is the God of the Bible. Just raw grace and mercy. How gracious is God? But then God makes, we said God makes promises to Abram. We, we called it earlier, I said it was called the Abrahamic Covenant. Um, what does God promise to Abram, though? That's the real question, right? Let, let's, let's kind of break into these verses and see. I see that God promises four things to Abram in this covenant. One, he promises to make Abram into a great nation, right? Or to give Abram descendants. And bear in mind, Sarah is about 65 years old, his wife. And she's barren. She doesn't have any kids. She's unable to have kids. And God says, I'm going to turn you into a great nation, Abram. 
We see in in the following chapter uh, 13 and in chapter 15, God says, I will give you descendants as numerous as the dust on the earth. Is what he says in, in Genesis 13. And then in Genesis 15, he says, I'm going to give you descendants. He says, Abram, look up in the night sky and count all the stars if you can. That's how many descendants that I'm going to give you. As numerous as the stars, as numerous as the dust on the earth. Abram will have many descendants, enough to form a nation of people. Right? Even a small nation, that has to be a huge number of people. So God's going to give Abram a ton of descendants, enough so to turn into a nation. The second thing, he says, I'm going to make your name great. Which is funny, because remember in the, at the Tower of Babel, a chapter before, the place where Abram's from, they wanted to make their own name great, and God smacked them. <laughs> right? But now God goes to Abram and says, I'm going to make your name great. Which I think is interesting to see that whenever God wants to do that, um, that if someone's name is going to be made, be made great, God must be the one to do it. Everything else is futile. I think it's just a, a cool little parallel um, or correlation to, to make there. But what does he mean, I will make your name great? I think the same thing that the Babylonians were after in chapter 11. That God's telling Abram, everyone will know who you are. I will see to it that everyone knows who you are, Abram. You will be eternally remembered. You will be eternally revered and respected, Abram. And God makes a third promise. He says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. I take that to mean that God says, I'm going to take care of you, Abram. I'm going to take care of you and your descendants. Right? This promise goes on to, to the nation of Israel. I will bless those who bless you, and him who curses you, or dishonors you, I will curse that I will protect you and your descendants. I will oppose their enemy, or I will oppose your and their enemies and bless your and their allies. Anyone who aligns himself with you will receive blessing from me, who aligns himself with your posterity. And then he says this one, and this one's a little bit tricky. And through you, all the families of the world will be blessed. All right, that's kind of, I probably had Abram scratching his head. How is that, how are you going to bless all the, the whole world through me? How is that going to work? Luckily for us, Paul explains that one to us. The Apostle Paul, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, Paul says this, And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So what is Paul saying? Paul's saying that this is an early proclamation of the gospel. That the Messiah will be of Abraham, or will be of Abram, right? That the Messiah is going to come through the line of Abram. He's going to be a descendant of Abram, and and that he will save people of all nations, right? Not just people from Abram's line, but anyone who believes, no matter where they're from, no matter what their ethnicity, uh, cultural background, wherever they're from, whatever, this Messiah will come from Abram and save them if they will believe. Now, these are huge promises, Right, like monumental. And they seem impossible. They kind of all hinge on Abram having a child. <laughs> right? And Sarah is barren. Keep that in mind. So Abram is just this pagan dude with no power to make any of this stuff happen whatsoever. And yet, in spite of the perceived difficulty, God acts throughout history to fulfill every single one of those promises. And I, I, I want to lay this, because I know some of you guys are already thinking, well, what has God promised me? Because we're going to get there later. I want to just side note, this isn't in the notes. This is a freebie. This is for you. Um, 
God does them in his timetable. Abram does not live to see the nation. Abram does not live to see his name be made great. Abram doesn't live to see really anything except God saying, I will take care of you. Abram doesn't live to see any of those things. So bear that in mind whenever you're considering the promises of God, that he fulfills them in his timetable when he sees fit. The Apostle Paul says the Messiah that blesses the nations in the fullness of time, Jesus came. God's timetable, not ours. But again, in spite of the perceived difficulty, um, sooner or later, God acts within history in order to fulfill every single promise. Right? Let's just run them down. Right? We're not going to go verse to verse here. I'm just going to kind of give you a narrative of how God works uh, in Abram and in his descendants. We see God promised to make him into a great nation. And we see that Abram's descendants go on to become the nation of Israel. Right? Abram has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. God changes Jacob's name to Israel halfway through his life. Uh, Israel has 12 sons who then make up the 12 tribes of Israel, like Benjamin, Dan, Judah, those guys, right? Read, read your Bibles. You'll understand what I'm talking about uh, for their names. And those 12 tribes, their descendants go on and on and on. Millions of people throughout history can trace their lineage back to Abram. Right? And consider this. The Apostle Paul tells us that Abram is the spiritual father of all who put their faith in Christ. So not only is Abram the father of an ethnic, physical nation, but Abram is the father of a spiritual nation with untold numbers of people who have been justified by faith in Christ. So twofold, actually, God fulfills that promise. So that's an interesting thought. So God definitely fulfills the first promise. Um, second promise, God says, I will make your name great. Abraham is mentioned over 200 times in the Bible. Like, just throwing this out there. Like, with the exception of being like Judas and getting name dropped in the Bible, that's a huge honor, <laughs> right? To, yeah, again, there are some people like, they probably didn't want their name in there. It's to their eternal scorn, really. All right, so think about this. Abram gets name dropped 200 times by God because the scriptures are, are written under the influence of the Holy Spirit. God mentions him 200 times in his eternal word that will stand forever. But not only that, right? So there's 200 uh, times... In, in Hebrews 11, we get this thing that uh, sometimes Christians refer to as the hall of faith, right? Instead of the hall of fame, because we're lame and we make cheesy <laughs> names up for stuff. But the hall of faith, Abraham is mentioned more than anyone else. He's mentioned, depending on what translation you read, over a dozen times in that chapter. Or he's referenced to or mentioned a dozen times within that chapter of these great men and women of faith in the Old Testament. And consider this. Even today, anyone who knows anything about religion knows who Abraham is. Those of you who are in college, you ever heard of the Abrahamic religions? Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, they all claim Abraham as their forefather, right? If you know anything about religion, you know who Abraham is. We're talking about him now, right? <laughs> with, with great respect towards him. Surely God has made his name great, right? In churches everywhere throughout the world, Abraham is still being talked about. He's very important. So God made his name great. Third, he says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. We see throughout history, God preserved Israel. Until the coming of Christ, whenever they were no longer his people, because Jesus says, if you reject me, you reject my father, and you break covenant with him. So long as they were God's people, God preserved them. He protected, and he defends them. Whenever a nation rises up against them, 
right? Like Egypt enslaving them. What does God do? He brings them out, lays a smack down on the king of Egypt. We see whenever Babylon, you know, and Assyria rise up against them, like Isaiah said they would, and all the prophets warned. What eventually happens? Another country comes in, smacks them down too, and God's people come out. Even in the Babylonian exile, what happened? God brought a remnant of his people out. He protected them. So we see God most definitely kept that promise to bless those who bless him and curse those who curse him. It never ended well for nations that raised up against Israel in the Old Testament. And then he said, I will bless the nations through you. Right? And this is the big one. And you guys already know this one. We, we see that God did that because, again, I'm going to do the genealogy. There's Abram. Abram has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob gets his name changed to Israel. Has a son named Judah. Judah's line on down the road has David. God makes a promise to David that the Messiah is going to come from David's line. And then Jesus... In the genealogies in Matthew, you should read all of the Bible. Don't skip the first chapter of Matthew. It's important, right? I know you guys, you want to skip that part. Um, We see Jesus comes from David's line. So if we trace Jesus' line back, we get back to Abram. And then we see Christ blesses the nation with his atonement, right? Taking our punishment in our place for all who will believe, suffering the wrath of God, giving us his righteousness so that we could stand before God in judgment and be acquitted. Jesus blessed the nation. So we see... He fulfilled that. So what does this tell us about our God? I know for some of you, maybe that was tedious. I know I'm kind of laboring the point, but whatever, man. I got the mic and you don't. So what does this tell us about our God? This. God is always faithful to his promises. One way or another, God always does what he says that he'll do. And he will always be for us what he says he will be. Take hold of that. The whole Bible. I heard a preacher say this once. In in Genesis 1, we see God creates everything. In, In the last chapter of Revelation, we see that God fixes everything. And in between, he's saying, trust me, I will be faithful to you. Right? So the Bible is one big testimony to the faithfulness of God and the trustworthiness of God to his people. Consider this, check this out. This is, this is a beautiful verse for me to get to, uh, to get to look at again this week. Numbers 23, 19. A prophet says this, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Those are rhetorical questions. Right? He's like, if God says he'll do it, he'll do it, will he not? Like, are you dumb? Like, that's what this prophet is telling them. God says he'll do it. Remember that. He's going to do it. Like, what a rock-solid foundation that we have as Christians. That whatever God promises to us, he will certainly do. He is supremely trustworthy. We need not live in constant fear or worry, right? And God knows we need to hear that right now with as many people are losing their mind in America. Seriously, I mean, I'm not the most political man in the world, but get a grip, man. If you're a Christian, has God spoken and will not fulfill it? Is he not sovereign? We're going to get into all that in just a minute. We can trust him in everything. Because whatever God has promised will indeed come to pass. He cannot be contradicted. He's king. And he's not just a king with some power. He's a king with all power. There's, there's freedom in that. So I wanted to kind of stretch that out. There's freedom there. 
knowing that every word of God proves true, according to the proverb. But I think that the natural question then should be for us, if we see that God was super faithful to Abram, <laughs> what has God promised us? What, what has God promised me? Right? That's what we're always <laughs> worried about. What about me? John Piper thought, me. You ever listen to John Piper? He does that real deep me. He like shakes the rafters. I digress. I'm sorry. You should look up John Piper. He's a way better preacher than me. He's old. He might pass away soon. Check him out. Like before it's too late. You should go see him live. Um, <laughs> too dark? Yeah, a little dark. I'm sorry. I love John Piper. He is, uh, like, I wish he was my granddad sometimes. Not that I don't love my granddad. Um, <laughs> It's a good thing my grandparents don't have iPhones, so they can't listen to these podcasts, because that didn't come out right. Anyway, so (laughs) the question is, what has God promised me? That's our natural question. If God's faithful to his promises, then what has he promised me? Before we go any further, I got a disclaimer, but whenever we're going to talk about the promises of God, because if you ever get on TBN, right, and watch Joel Osteen and people like that, God help you, because that's horrible teaching, and they're going to jack the promises of God so far out of context that you may as well be reading the Koran, right? Like, it doesn't even, it's not even the Bible anymore, right? So whenever we talk about the promises of God, what I'm talking about is, are the general promises of God, Right? The promises that God makes generally to his people are, are ours. Okay? They are ours. Specific promises of God, like those he made to Abram, belong to Abram. Right? They belong to specific people. Okay, now we got that. So what we're not talking about is this. I feel like... <laughs> It's my least favorite sentence to come out of a Christian's mouth. I feel like God has promised me money or health or this job or this spouse or whatever, this home, whatever it is, that I feel like God's promised me this. It's not what we're talking about. We're talking about this. What has Scripture, the Word of God, what has it revealed that God has promised to His people as a general promise for all time to us? That's what we're talking about. So what are they? I got three ideas. The second one has a lot of subpoints, but I see three general promises, and we could have done quite a few more. Um, but I'm not that smart, and I can't dig that deep. Just to be totally honest with you, the first one is this: God promises salvation by faith in Christ alone. And the reason why I'm starting there, although I know some of you are maybe saying, "Yeah, dude, we know that. What else?" Right? The reason why we're starting here is because all the rest hinge on this promise. Everything else God says hinges on being in a covenant relationship with Him. And God makes this promise, this promise of salvation by faith in Christ to all people. He makes this promise to people who are not yet in covenant with Him. But everything else is a covenant promise. And God only makes covenant promises to covenant people exclusively. Okay, Faith in Christ is how we enter into that covenant. So the covenant people of God are the church. I don't mean everyone that's sitting here necessarily, but I mean those who have placed their faith in Christ, and the Bible says are in Christ. So this is believers only make up this. So if you're not a Christian, everything that I'm getting ready to say, apart from this first point, is not for you. But it could be. If you will repent and believe. So... God promises salvation by faith in Christ. Let's read three passages real quick. The most famous passage in the whole Bible. John 3.16. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. What's the promise there? If you believe in the son, Jesus, you will not perish. Meaning you will not perish in hell but have eternal life. Now sometimes we read that and we glaze over it so quickly. Consider the precious truth there. You were going to perish apart from Jesus, but God says, if you believe in him, I promise you, you will live forever. You will never see an ounce of my wrath ever. Romans 1.16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, this message of Christ crucified. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to who? To everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Fun fact, if you're not a Jew, you're a Greek. Right? That's, that's how Paul's talking here. So this is made to anyone who will believe on Christ. This is the power of God to save you from his own wrath. Romans 4, 3, and 5. Paul says this, For what does the scripture say? He makes a reference to Genesis. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, God, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So again, all of these say, believe. The Greek word for believe or faith carries an element of trust. He's saying, trust me that I will fulfill this promise. And the promise is that Christ has taken on the punishment and wrath of God for sinners That God might be just and His holiness be upheld and still be the one who saves sinners so that He can be both just and the justifier. That God says if you will trust in Christ, then He will credit your sin to Christ where Christ paid for it on the cross and He will credit Christ's perfect sinless life to your account so you'll be judged based off the righteousness of Christ and not your own sinful life. And He does this in spite of our rebellion. In spite of our deserving hell. An eternal conscious torment of fire under the unmitigated wrath of God. Though that is what we deserve, he laid that on Christ and promises to justify those who believe. I don't know about you guys, but I run back to this every day because I fail every day. I sin every day in some way, shape, or form. Everyone does. What else do you have to hold on to? It's this, this is all you got. God promises to save you. That there's no more worrying if you're a believer on Christ. There's no more worrying about our standing before God. Consider that. Let, seriously, let that sink in for a minute. You don't have to worry anymore. It's been settled. It's written in stone. You're in Christ now. There's no more trying to earn your salvation God promises this to you by faith. So again, if you're not a believer, you're a sinner and you need salvation from God by God. Trust in Christ. Turn from your sin. Put your faith in Him and enter into the rest of these promises with us. But if not, God will judge you according to your own life and you will suffer hell for eternity. There is no third option. But for those of us who are in Christ, who have entered into this covenant through faith, what else does God promise us? It's awesome. He promises comfort to his people. You know, everyone always says, you know, we're all children of God, or we're all God's children. No, you're not. People who are outside of Christ, Ephesians 2, Paul says, you are children of the wrath of God. 
But to those of us who are in Christ, you are children of God. And God, that means God is your Father now. And what does Paul say? We're going to look at 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 4. This is what he says about our Father, those of us who are in Christ. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. Paul's telling us that God comforts us in all, all of our affliction, regardless of what we face. And I've talked to some of you in, this, in, in, the, in the last few weeks. Hear me. If you are hated by your family, if you are hated by the world around you, if you are in financial distress, you know, like money's tight or, or whatever, you've lost your job, you don't know what you're going to do, if you have relationship problems, in whatever facet, whether it's a romantic relationship or, or whatever, uh, or you have work problems or you know, uh, whether we're persecuted, right? So I'm looking at, at like the church global. All our afflictions, God promises to comfort us because he is our father and he's the father of mercies. But I don't just want to leave it there, right? Because if you're like me, you're a tad bit of a cynic. Um, how does God comfort us? Legitimate question. I got a few ways that I think the Bible tells us that God comforts his covenant people. The first one is this He comforts us with his sovereignty. This, that means sovereign means to be in total control, that nothing happens apart from your will ultimately, that God may allow things to happen that violate his revealed will in the scripture, but his hidden will, his eternal counsel, nothing happens that violates that. Everything is in accordance with his rule and his plan. Romans 8.28 says this, And we know that for those who love God, the covenant people, those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. This is all things. This isn't just whenever, you know, you find out your wife's pregnant and you're excited, or you find out that, you know, you just got a promotion at work, or, or you know, or whatever it is. But this is all things. Paul was writing that letter to people who were either being persecuted or about to start being murdered for their faith in Christ. And he's saying, listen, we know this, that all things work together for the good of those who love God. This is all things. Consider, like I run to this whenever I feel like my life is going to shambles. That God, there's not one thing that you have not foreordained that I'm going through right now. And it's for my good. And it's for your glory. And I know it's for my good and for your glory because everything happens to your glory according to your word. And everything that happens to me happens for my eternal good according to your word. Like we looked at Numbers 23, 19. Has God spoken it and it will not come to pass? God does not lie, nor does God change his mind. He's being faithful to us. We're comforted with his sovereignty that nothing happens to us apart from his will. He also comforts us with his peace. When we pray, Philippians 4, 6 through 7 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Combine that one with the sovereignty we just talked about. 
the God who rules every single molecule and particle of dust that floats in the sunlight cares for you. He hears you when you talk to him. He hears your requests. He loves you enough to listen. And then he loves you enough to act for your eternal good. Like how peaceful is it? And legit, some of you maybe... You don't pray much, and so you would scoff at this, but I can can attest to this personally. How much peace that you get whenever you take everything in your life that that you have no control over, which I might add is everything, and you take your problems to God in prayer and make your request known to Him. What peace that you have. Because you've taken it before the throne of the creator and sustainer of the universe. Is there any higher authority you can take your problem to? And yet foolishly sometimes, seeking comfort, we'll go talk to our mothers. Which I'm not saying that that's bad. I love you, Mom. Right? I'm not saying that that's bad. But really, does she control the universe? No. So we'll talk to anyone but God, and then we wonder why we have no peace. It's because you've not taken it as high as it can go. But if you take it to God, whatever it is that's going on, God says He will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ because we know that we are in Christ because of our faith in Christ, that he's called us out and that he hears us and he's our father and that he cares for us and he's in control. There's peace there. So he promises us peace when we pray. And he comforts us by promising to be our refuge to hide in. Psalm 91 says, I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. What was that saying? Saying you can run to God. Again, I think this ties closely in with the point we just talked about in prayer. We can run to God. He promises ultimately to protect us because he is a loving father. He's someone that we can hide in whenever we have nowhere else to go, whenever we have no one else to confide in. He says, I am there. And Jesus says, I will not leave you nor forsake you. And behold, I'm with you even to the end of the age. He's there. He's a refuge. And he comforts us by promising to take care of us. Matthew 6, we looked at this last week. Look at the birds of the air. This is Jesus. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Skipping down to verse 30. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we wear, or what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So here we have a raw promise from Jesus that God will take care of us, that he will provide for us. Now hear me out. There's comfort in there. If you understand it rightly, it's not all bubblegum and rainbows, though. God will give us what he sees that we need, not what we want. Whatever he thinks that you need. It is an unloving father who gives us who gives everything that his kids ask for. Right, I was lay that before you. An unloving father gives you everything that you want. And God may say that you need to suffer in order to grow. But it's for your good to grow and know him more, is it not? Everything else is 
fleeting except for knowing him. And then we come to the third thing, right? So we just looked at a whole bunch of ways that God comforts us, right? And I think that we need that right now, just with different people talking to him, and especially, like, I don't know about you guys, but have you, ever had this, have you had this knot in your stomach since Tuesday? Like, no? I'm a freak, whatever. Um, so we look at how God comforts us. What else does God promise? This is, this is huge. This is huge. God promises to quote J.R.R. Tolkien, all things sad will become untrue. He prom- like seriously, listen to me. He promises that all things sad will become untrue someday. He's promised this not just since Christ has come. He's promised this from the Old Testament. He promised this in Isaiah and in Revelation. We're going to look at both. Isaiah 65. Isaiah says this. This is speaking for God. He says, God says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people no more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. He's talking about the end of all things. And in Revelation, John says this, this is beautiful. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, the throne of God, from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and he himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of of the water of life without payment. To sum all that up, I know that was a good bit. To sum all that up, God promises us that someday all wrongs will be righted. Everything that's wrong will be fixed. Everything that's broken will be fixed. That come the end. And this is a reference to the return of Jesus Christ because Jesus promises to return to us, to rule the world, that whenever Christ comes back, that it will be the end of oppression. It will be the end of racial divides. It will be the end of corruption. It will be the end of rebellion. It will be the end of the rebels against God. It will be the end of sin, death, sickness, despair, pain, strife, brokenness, mourning. Everything sad will become untrue whenever Christ comes. That is a promise. Notice that God even says, write these things down. These words are trustworthy and true. These things are promised to us when Christ returns, and they're promised to the covenant people. If you're not a part of this covenant people, you will be part of that which is destroyed by God. But if you're a covenant people, person, if your faith is in Christ, this is promised to you, the end of all sadness. Now these things will not happen perfectly or fully until Christ returns to reign unopposed. Remember that. We are only promised these things 
whenever Christ fully comes and fully reigns unopposed and strikes down the rebellion. But they will happen. (laughs) But they will happen. God has promised them. This is our hope. What a glorious hope that God gives us. That this world is not the end. No matter how, thing, how bad things get, this is not the final state of the universe. This is what drives us and keeps us from despair. And this is a sure and steadfast promise to God. All of these things, the comfort, the salvation, the, the, the final restoration of the world, all of these things are as sure to us as the promises to Abraham. I feel like I need to, there's a caveat to this. I need to make a side note because I know what some of you might do if you're like me. Uh, the promise of the return of Christ does not mean that we bomb shelter and wait, right? It doesn't mean that we're like, oh man, you know, so-and-so got into some political power and let's just hunker down, hide in our homes and just Jesus take me out of this place, right? Like just waiting for him to take us out. That's not what we do with this. The church is still meant, in light of these promises, we are still meant to go and push for justice. We are still meant to push for justice and still meant to help people. Why? Because we are a living foreshadowing of that kingdom to come. We always talk about the kingdom is already here, but not yet. That's what we are. We're a foreshadowing of these things to come. So the question, because I'm always, I always do this in question form, because if you're like me, you have to ask a lot of questions when you read the Bible. Why does God promise these things to us, and why will he do them all? Why does he promise them? Why, why will he, mainly, why will he do them? Why should God keep these promises? Namely, because he promised them to himself. Right? We call this in theology the covenant of redemption. This is where God promise before time began the father and the son made a pact if you will they made a covenant a promise a contract with one another son they are going to fall that is my decree the world will fall into sin i want you to go and save them by your death and resurrection and the son agreed i will redeem mankind and then i want you to return someday and squash out the rebellion and rule and he says i will do that also i will redeem the world This is why all of God's promises happen in the Bible. This is why God promised um, a a serpent crusher to Eve, right? The one who's going to crush the head of the serpent but have his heel bruised. This is why God spared Noah in the flood. This is why God promised Abram. This is why God promised Judah that the scepter wouldn't depart from Judah. This is why God promised the Messiah would come from David. This is why God promises salvation to us. It's because of this covenant of redemption. Paul in Ephesians talks about in love God predestined us for adoption before the foundation of the world was laid that we would be adopted through Jesus meaning that Jesus has always been the plan this covenant of redemption has always been the plan and God made the promise to himself further Isaiah 48:11 God's talking about why he will save and keep his people he says this for my own sake For my own sake I do it, for how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. So why does he save us? Why is he going to fulfill all of these promises? He says for his sake he does all of them. This is a solid hope for us that God will make good on his promises. And here's why. 
you and I don't deserve God to keep his promises to us. We don't. We break his commands all the time. We break covenant with him on a daily basis. We sin every day. We don't deserve one promise from God ever, right? So if God just makes the promise to me, I'm a little bit shaky about it, right? Because that means that I probably have something to do with this covenant because it takes two parties to make a covenant. But if God in eternity past has promised these things to himself, he won't deny himself. He is worthy of keeping a promise to himself. So all the promises that God makes to you, he makes to himself first. That's how we know that he will keep them all. That's solid hope. So how should we respond to this? I think we respond to this in the same way that Abram responded. Genesis 12, 4. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram went. What does that mean? Abram trusted that God would do it. In spite of how bleak his circumstances were, right? Sarah was barren. He was 75. Sarah was 65. She was actually 90 whenever she finally gave birth to Isaac, right? But Abram trusted At 75 years old, Abram packed up and moved. 75 years old, Abram packed up and moved. Why? Because he believed God would do as God had said he would do. Abram based his entire life around God's word to him. So how should we respond? We should, likewise, base our lives around the promises of God. What does that mean? It means that we don't abandon all hope. In times of trial and difficulty. You don't abandon hope. If you really believe that God is faithful to his promise. Concern is okay. Planning isn't bad. But what do we do? We do like Peter told us to do. And entrust ourselves to a faithful creator. And in doing so, we keep our joy. If we trust these promises of God, we refuse to be consumed by worry and anxiety. Because we know that God is Father. He is sovereign. He loves us dearly. So much that he gave his son for us. Will he withhold anything else from us? He is our comfort. He is unfailing. He is faithful so we don't despair and we don't give up hope. What else does this mean? I also think it means this. And hear me. Because I might offend everybody in the room. I got your attention. Um, If God's going to be faithful to his promises and we're going to respond like Abram and basing our lives around these promises, that means that we don't hope in worldly things to set this world right. We don't hope in worldly things to set this world right. right? And what I'm talking about, if you didn't guess, or the thing about the election, right? I'm not going to have you raise hands and tell me who you voted for. <laughs> That's none of my business. But think about this. If you were in despair before the election happened because you thought, man, Hillary Clinton is going to get in. This is the end of Christianity. We are going to be persecuted or or whatever it is, right? Uh, They're going to take rights from us, whatever rights that we have left. Um, And you were in despair, right? Tax reasons, whatever it was. You were just bad mood and just feeling desperate all the time because you thought surely she was going to win. Or if you are currently in despair because Trump won, Right? And you're, and you're afraid of what he's going to do. 
If you felt despair either before or after this election, this proves that you don't believe that it is Christ who will ultimately fix all things. And it is God who is going to keep you. And it proves that you don't really believe or trust that God is your comfort and your fortress. That you don't really believe that it is God who will take care of us. And we don't really believe that Jesus has promised that the gates of hell will not overcome the church. I'm not saying that we can't be sad sometimes or we can't be frustrated. But I'm saying if we are just soaking in desperation, then we prove that we think God is a liar. Which ultimately proves that you were trusting in the wrong thing. But if we trust God's promise, that means we're going to look forward to the day of the Lord when Christ returns and all will be well. So in the words of R.C. Sproul, in the final analysis, we soldier on, right? This is what we're going to do with this. We're going to soldier on trusting the living God in all circumstances, placing our hope in his promises of salvation, comfort, and the final restoration of all things, looking forward to and living in light of Christ's return and fighting despair with the word of God. Hear me on this. Thus saith the Lord is a powerful weapon against desperation. We'll close with this. 1 Corinthians 1.9 God is faithful by whom you Christians, you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. If God was faithful enough to bless the nations in Christ and then call us into fellowship with him by his son, then surely God will be faithful to us in everything else. Hope in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for being faithful for fulfilling every promise that you've ever promised. For giving us your word that tells us that the things that you've not yet done, that you've promised, that that we shouldn't count your fulfilling your promise as slowness, but that you're being patient so that we would repent and turn to Christ. That that's why Christ hasn't come, is that you're being patient towards sinners. That's why you've not put an end to the rebellion, is that you're, you're waiting for the last person that you have called to yourself to come to faith in you. So God, thank you for your, for your patience and your mercy. Father, help us to be patient and wait upon you. Help us to trust you in every circumstance. Help us to trust you with everything. Give us grace for that. You are hope. You are peace. You are our Father. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.